0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Hello and good afternoon to those of you who are watching on the West Coast, and good evening to those of you on the East Coast. My name is Mariah Balingit, and I'm an education reporter for the Washington Post. It is my pleasure to be your moderator for today's special event a student summit on civics. This summit is being brought to you by the Commonwealth Club of California in association with CivX Now, a national coalition of over 100 organizations that are focused on improving civics education and promoting civic engagement for all students. The Commonwealth Club, a member of this coalition, recently launched Creating Citizens, a civics education initiative that receives primary support from the Court Foundation. Could there be a more important time in recent American history than now to embrace civics education? In this presidential year of 2020, We are experiencing a pandemic that has transformed the world, an economic recession, racial unrest on par with the 1960s, a battle over the future of the Supreme Court, and historic wildfires in the West. Our young people are deeply affected by what's going on and they are powerful forces for change. Many adults stress the importance of civics education as one significant way to prepare students to address these issues. Yet we don't even ask the students themselves what they think. What do they need in order to become civically engaged? And what do schools need to do to improve the relevance and impact of civics education? This is why we have gathered here today to hear student perspectives on civics education and its role in solving today's pressing social and racial justice issues. I'm coming to you today from Washington, DC. I'm joined by four super duper smart high school students from around the country. All of them have participated in Now's year-long equity and civics youth fellowship program, and each of them is bound to be a future leader of this country. Joining me today, um, from California, Anaya Bangston, a 12th grader at Oakland Technical High School in Oakland, California. Viren Mehta, a 10th grader at Oxford Academy in Cypress, California. Closer to me geographically, we have Matt Green, a 12th grader at Red Bank Valley High School in New Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And Marcus McNeil, an 11th grader, at Fenway High School in Boston, Massachusetts. Welcome everyone. I am very excited to start the conversation, but one final note before we jump in. If you have a question for me or for any of the students, please post it in the YouTube chat box or the Facebook comment section, and they will be forwarded to me during the program. I also wanted to briefly say that I've been writing about schools for about a half dozen years and have been writing about youth issues for even longer than that. And two things have really struck me. First of all, teenagers today are really freaking smart. They're way smarter than we were at their age. And second, when we don't listen to them, we end up creating really, really bad policy, and it ends up being bad for everybody involved. So what I hope for today's participants is that you leave this conversation with a radically altered perspective about how we should make policy that involves youth, that we should involve them as real legitimate voices and not just as tokens, that we don't just pat ourselves on the back if we bring in one student um, or talk to one young person. Um, I really think that they need to be a central part of the policymaking process. So let's jump in. Um, Given all of this, do you think adults and particularly policymakers are listening to young people? And if not, why not?
2: Um, I feel from my personal experience right now that there are some adults who I think have made great efforts Uh, to elevate student voice but I think there's also a great amount who hasn't and I only say that because students are continually still leading protests and meetings within their schools asking for their voices to be heard Um, so I think there's definitely still some improvement that needs to happen between the adult and a student relationship.
3: Yeah I definitely think that you know, a lot of adults, I would say, do a very good job of listening to, you know, younger people like us. But then there are some adults who could really care less of what we have to say. And, you know, that really hurts our feelings a lot because, you know, Mara, like you said earlier, we're very we're really smart. And, you know, I think sometimes our ideas are a little are a little too much for adults and sometimes our ideas kind of aren't aligned with uh, with adults specifically. So maybe that's why they disagree with us a lot. But I think adults need to start learning how to be more open with younger people.
4: You know, adults, people always say, well, as you get older, you you gain more wisdom. But I like to think that younger people have a, a fresh perspective on life. You know, they haven't been um, around as long and that could be a bad thing, but that also is a good thing. Um, you know, it, it's, it's just a new way to look at things.
0: I completely agree. I think that we need to stop looking at age as a factor of knowledge. I think that there are a lot of teenagers out there who are really interested in policymaking, but nobody wants to listen to them just because of their age. And I think we need to stop doing that. I do agree with Anaya that we have made steps to do that, but we need to make continued steps to bridge that bond between our adults, our policymakers, those that are in office right now, and with the youth.
1: Well, one of the things that struck me when we spoke before is that some of you are actually involved in get-out-the-vote efforts. Um, You are helping and encouraging Adults to vote when you can't vote yourselves. So, what would you guys think about? There are definitely policy there, there are proposals in in different places, including in D.C. to lower the voting age for certain elections to 16. Um, what is what are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, I believe that especially for local elections, that um, the voting age should definitely be lowered, and I think that you, young people should definitely have a uh, choice and deciding who is um, leading their cities uh, for sure um, because our office holders um, and their decisions impact young people directly. And so we should definitely have a choice on who's running and leading our city. Yeah,
3: I think, I well, number one, I fully support lowering the voting age to 16. Um, And I think the reason for that is being, you know, like Anaya was saying, it starts locally, and we need to figure out who best represents us and who are the people that we want to put in office in order to represent our values.
4: And, And this is the thing I always refer to when we talk about lowering the voting age. You don't start teaching the alphabet at age 20. You start that as soon as you can. So if we start teaching how to vote
0: at 18, it's kind of too late. You know, you have to make the impact early. I think that allowing people to vote at a younger age definitely would foster things like political participation. A lot of teenagers right now are really interested in politics, but they can't sort of voice their opinions because of systemic barriers that prevent them from doing so. I think that allowing them to vote could allow them through the ballot to voice their opinions and also allow for more political participation, so that when they grow older, they can have that knowledge and be active citizens to foster democratic ideals.
1: Great. Well, I wanted to go um, go back for you guys, and I want you guys to try and remember when you weren't vocal participants in our democracy. How did you get from the from How did you get to where you are now, where you're confident, you're out there? you're involved in political campaigns. It takes a lot of confidence. It's a little bit scary. How did you get there? And how did you find the issues that really, um, you know, touched your heart?
3: Well, I think that, you know, for me, it wasn't always a straight path to, you know, this type of confidence. And it all kind of changed gears as soon as I got to high school. So if you were to ask me what kind of middle school I was, I would say very reserved and quiet, like you would usually find me in the back of the classroom, just like not participating at all. And, I had a conversation with one of my former middle school teachers and they were telling me, they was like, Marcus, you need to apply yourself and you need to start focusing focusing on things that you're passionate about. And, you know, over the years through middle school, I started gaining that confidence. And as soon as I got into high school, it was kind of a fresh slate for me to start kind of over again with myself. And, you know, I'm starting to gain this confidence. And as, you know, a junior, I'm very proud and looking back, I'm just proud of the progress that I've made and, I'm glad that I'm here like tonight with you all and talking to our viewers because I don't think I could do that in middle school.
1: Well, yeah, and I, I'd love to hear too from any of you if your civics education played any role or if it didn't, um, if if the civics program helped at all.
2: Yeah, I would say for me, I think growing up, I've always actually been pretty outspoken and uh, direct in any problems that I have ever encountered in um, school, but I would say um, as far as learning how to take action on any issues or passions I had um, was definitely through a civic program uh, called Generation Citizen, which came to my school and taught my class a little bit about civics and how to be an engaged citizen um, for about 10 weeks. And just through that program, I was able to advance my skills Um, not only in civic education, but just understanding how I can actually uh, take action on issues that I have. So learning how to uh, create petitions, email local officials, um, things like that. So civic education has been a big part um, of my advocacy.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think that at a very young age, I was also outspoken. But before civics education or learning what civics was, I didn't really have a method or a way in order to sort of speak out about things I found interesting to me, such as climate change, such as poverty, such as homelessness, all these issues. I noticed them at a very young age and I was like, what can I do to help other people? How can I speak out in my democracy to help other people. And there just wasn't a route for me until I started doing things like learning uh, speech and debate, which was a big thing because it allowed me to learn a lot about politics. It allowed me to learn a lot about speaking out about issues, specifically climate change in my context. But I want to stress the idea of how it all starts with the school. The ability for the school to give us things like civic education is key because We will never have another route to speaking out in a democracy about things we feel passionate about if the school doesn't give us the resources or sort of the classes or the knowledge in order to do that in the first place. Mm -hmm.
1: Matt, I wanted to ask you um, what you think of how your civics education has gone up to this point. Do you feel like your school and your mainstream classes has equipped you with the tools to be an active participant in democracy?
4: Well, I want to start out by giving a shout out to my civics teacher, um, Dr. Joe Harmon. Uh, he, he is not your typical civics teacher. He does a lot of project-based assessment. And that really, I think, gets a lot of kids interested. You know, it's not how many senators are there. How, you know, it's, it's more beyond government. It's learning how to express yourself and deal with other people. Um, at, at, at my school, we have a civics class in eighth grade taught by Dr. Harmon, and then in 12th grade, we have a government class and that's about it. I would love for there to be more though. Um, my school is in a position where we're not really able to hire teachers at will. Um, but I would definitely love to see more. That's something I'm going to try to work on. Well, if I can.
1: Yeah, And where do you think your school could do better? And let me ask you this, uh, Anaya, just simply because I know when we spoke before, you sort of mentioned how you felt like sometimes your teachers didn't really address current social and racial ju- justice issues, for example.
2: Um, I just think that it starts off with teachers um, taking initiative to open these conversations. And I noticed that a lot of our teachers in schools tend to avoid uncomfortable um, or Political conversations in class. But as Varen mentioned, it starts there. This is where students are able to learn to express themselves, where students are able to grow their knowledge in civics and um, world issues in general. And so I know for me, I just feel like if teachers will be more open to taking the time out, allowing students to engage in conversations, uh, building consistent consensus on issues that may be affecting um, either their school or their environment, um, opening these conversations in the classroom, it needs to start there and not being afraid to um, touch on these uncomfortable conversations. Yeah, and is sorry, go ahead. go ahead.
4: Sorry, just real quick. I think a lot of teachers are afraid of controversy And something I always like to say is you shouldn't, you should be able to discuss something civically and not, you know, hate the other person for having a different view. You should be able to respect them for their view, know where you stand and be able to have a conversation.
1: Yeah. And I actually wanted to ask that very question. Um, Do you feel like uh, Marcus, that you are learning that skill? Um, Are you and your peers learning how to have civilized discussions about issues that you might disagree on?
3: Yeah, so actually, so since I've gotten into high school, one of my, in my humanities class, we have a lot of debates, and, you know, we touch many different topics, but one of the things that my teacher does that I really do appreciate, he takes a step back and doesn't let, he doesn't interfere in our conversation at all, so, you know, he'll post the questions on the board, and he'll say, okay, have at it, but then, you know, he'll he'll jump in when it gets, like, hostile or anything, but... um You know, it's one of those things where he lets us figure it out for ourselves and seeing because me and my classmates, we disagree on a lot of things, but that's one of the things that kind of like brings us together, kind of, if that makes sense, where we all disagree, but at the end of the day, we still respect each other. And I really appreciate that a teacher doesn't like control the conversation as much and just lets us like behave like young adults.
1: Well, I was interested in asking all four of you. Because I'm assuming you all have some kind of social media account, whether it's TikTok or Twitter or Facebook, which I understand now is just for old people. Um, But I'm interested to know what you think of how you use social media in activism or how it's being used and whether you think it's a positive or a negative thing. Or what are the pros and cons of um, social media in our democracy and
2: particularly in youth activism? Well, I know for me, um, social media has always been a place where I am able to not only become informed, but I think also help others become aware. But I didn't even realize the power of social media um, until I was fortunate enough to join iCivics Equity Fellowship, along with these three other students, Um, and we launched a social media campaign um, called Youth as Civic Experts, and we work to elevate um, students' voices and their opinions and concerns on civics, their experiences, their stories. And so I think when I was able to uh, work alongside these amazing group of students to launch this campaign, I realized how much power um, social media has on um, just bringing awareness to civics and how much it helps students become more informed and feel free to express themselves and their opinions. Yeah, what's something I know
1: that, for example, on my Instagram lately, there have been popping up these slides that kind of explain an issue from from the beginning, but often don't include any sourcing. Um, how are you guys? Is that something that you've seen on your social media? And how are you thinking about things like that? Or just me then.
2: I mean, I would just say, I think when you see certain slides or you see certain newsletters that come up, um, the basic thing that, you know, we were at least used to be taught in school was to do your research, um, make sure it's credible, look up the sites. I think most of these slides do provide you with where they got the information from. So you can always go back and look at your sources and make sure it's credible. Um, but I would say that's about the only thing you can really do. I know for the slides that I've seen, it's always uh, given people extra links to go back and look at this information. Yeah, so yeah, go ahead,
1: Matt.
4: Uh, like you were saying, there, a lot of them aren't credited. And um, a lot of those, I've, I've seen them and I thought, I never thought of that or, I or, oh, I didn't know that. So I go and look it up and it sparks more research, even though it wasn't credited. I would like it to be credited, but, you know, that's that's okay.
1: Yeah. Have, has Have you ever looked at something or seen a tweet or seen a slide and has it changed your mind on anything?
0: Definitely. I think that a lot of slides, a lot of tweets nowadays, they're on a wide range of issues, So through those slides, I've learned so much about so many different issues that affect all of us. And I would like to also stress the importance of not just relying on one news source, not just relying on social media, but also looking through those sources, searching things up, looking at multiple news sources so you get the whole idea.
1: And what about you, Marcus? Do you use social media in your activism or do you use it to keep up with the news?
3: Um, I kind of use it just for a little bit of everything. You know, I I communicate with my friends through social media and I find that, you know, social media, like Anaya was saying, since we used it for our social media campaign, it's just like, it's fueled my love for social media just a little bit more because I truly see the power of, you know, tweeting something and having it get attention for something that you care about and and then seeing how that impacts other people down the line. So, I mean, me personally, I've been affected by, you know, positive tweets and it's kind of changed my mind a little bit because it's like... I didn't think of it that way, and it allows me to open up a little bit more to other opinions.
1: Well, yeah. Can you give me an example of where that happened?
3: Um. Okay. Um.
1: Sorry to put you on the spot here.
3: <laughs> no, it's okay. Um, I remember seeing a a tweet on Insta- not Instagram, Twitter, that you know talked heavily about you know our politics and specifically more on party lines and I'm not gonna touch like in depth about it, but um, you know, I talked about one side versus the other and how they both have very different political views, but they're all just trying to get to one main central point and that's just keeping everyone safe. And, you know, not saying that one side is better than the other. I'm just saying that it changed my mind a little bit and it forced me to be a lot more open to accept other people's opinions and political affiliations. And you know, it was really surprising because I see myself as a very closed off person when it comes to different opinions. But, you know, through that tweet, like I said, it was a very powerful tweet and it really changed my views about certain things.
1: What about the rest of you? Have you ever seen a tweet or has has social media played any role in forming your views?
0: I think that what Marcus just said is really amazing because it's happened to me as well. When I see a on any sort of social media platform, I always look and consider that sort of viewpoint. And you have to be open to these other viewpoints if you want to decrease things like political polarization, just people that are not open to any viewpoints. And being open to others' viewpoints and things that I've learned from speech and debate is that you should always be open to other people's viewpoints because otherwise we won't have a sustainable democracy. And there have been tons and tons of posts that I've seen that may not share the same views as me, may not share the same ideals as me, but I always go through them and look at them and sort of learn what the other side's arguments are and sort of how can I help them with whatever issue they're going through. I think a lot of people get stuck, you know,
4: this is what I think,
0: this is what's right, but
4: there's always another side to an issue. And I think uh, like Viren said, you have to be really open to listening to those in order to create good discussion.
1: Well, speaking of civil discourse, um, I wanted to ask to get your assessment of how, the grownups are doing today um, in politics on the Hill, in the government. How would you assess the state of politics today? And how do you hope that your generation, when you guys run for office um, and we have the opportunity to vote for all of you, how do you hope that your generation will be different?
3: I think, well, to answer that in one word, I think it's very scary what's going on right now. And I'm, Still holding on to that hope that my generation is a generation that's gonna change a lot of these issues that are going on right now. And I think that my generation is gonna be the generation that's gonna unify everyone. Because I think adults these days are very close minded about other people's opinions. And it's weird how adults are so close-minded, but then you have younger generations like us where we, you know, we accept everyone for whoever whoever they are. And I think it's just very scary of how adults view things and how closed off that they can be?
2: I mean, just to add on to what Marcus said, he said it perfectly. Um, I feel like right now, um, just if I'm assessing politics and our politicians, I feel like it's very selfish. And I see a lot of the conversations, um, looking on the news and seeing how a lot of the things that are brought up are just about one person. And we aren't looking at the bigger picture and finding ways to make this democracy better as a whole. And I think right now we need to really focus on, and I hope that my generation can focus on running a government that is of the people, for the people, and by the people, because that's what it's really about. It
1: sounds like your sub-speech.
2: Um, what about you, Matt and Vera? And I'm
1: really interested to hear your thoughts on sort of the tenor of our government right now, the tenor of politics.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree with what's been said so far. I think that if there was one word, it would definitely be just like Marcus said, scary. I think that at the end of the the day, we're all people that want to be ruled by a, a good government that we can have a say in. And regardless of our political affiliations, we can put that aside and work together towards a common goal, which is definitely that we all want to make the world as safe and as inclusive to everyone as we can. So I think that breaking down those political barriers You know, uh, political polarization has hurt a lot of people, especially uh, things like passing foreign policy in our schools. Definitely political polarization has made it a very toxic environment to sort of speak out and have a voice because a lot of other people will just disagree with you without looking at sort of your viewpoints. And I think that a lot of adults in sort of our government right now are the people that foster those sort of ideas that if you disagree with me, you're wrong and you're bad, instead of actually looking at what they do. And I think that this has a very real effect on us as the United States and as a country that fosters democratic ideals, because if if we can't agree on anything, then we're not going to get anywhere, which is really important, especially with preventing a backslide to authoritarianism. This is why we live in a democracy, because we're allowed to speak out and have that voice and have some debates about it, but still we can agree and come together as one. Um, and like I said, have a government for the people.
1: What about you, Matt?
4: And building, building on all of that, it's been said very well. Um, uh, like uh, Viren was saying, there's a lot of political polarization these days. You know, like two camps slinging mud at each other. Uh, we all live in the same country. So we don't need to fight each other. We we should unite. Um, we're all like, and like has been said, we're all fighting for the same thing. We want a good government that is for the people. And we can't get that until we stop fighting each other
1: and do you find that your you and your peers like can do you have a, a classmate with whom you disagree with wholly that you still manage to have civic converse, or, um, civilized conversations with and how did you get to that point um how about you Matt
4: yeah i there there's um growing up in a rural area, there are a lot of people that um um, are of the mindset that my idea is it, and so I I've I find it easier just to, um, how do I want to word this? Not um, come out boldly something at first and give my opinion, but like kind of, you know, don't don't push it on them. Let have a nice civic discussion. Uh, yeah, but I, I do have a lot of
3: people who I disagree with,
4: and that's fine. I'm okay with that.
3: What about you, Marcus? I think building off of what Matt said too, I think he phrased it very well for, from my viewpoint as well. I have a lot of people that disagree with me and we may not like talk about our disagreements as much, but I'm still at the end, they're going to respect you. And I'm not going to like bash you for whatever you believe in, because that's just kind of what makes us human. We're not all the same. And I, it's kind of, we kind of have to do that in order to, you know, build this country that we're talking about being unified. We we need to accept each other's differences.
1: And Viren, I know you're involved in speech and debate, so you're practically an expert on this. Can you tell me um, about a time where you had a, a discussion that could have turned fraught that that you managed to keep civilized?
0: Yeah, definitely. I think that in debate, there's obviously going to be some heated argumentation where you sometimes you just don't meet eye to eye, and in those scenarios, I think that sort of the civics fellowship that I recently did, and all the speech and debate experience that I've had has taught me just to be way more open. There has been sort of times in which I really, really disagreed with an argument that somebody made, but instead of yelling them down or shouting them down or doing something uncivilized, I've learned to sort of accept their viewpoint, but also make arguments in a civilized manner so that I can teach them. And maybe I might be wrong, which is something I always try to remember, that I'm not always going to be right, you know there we all have things to learn. we all have issues we need to learn more in depth about, and especially through doing things like debate i've learned that there's so much that I personally don't know, and that a lot of people don't know, and I think that's really important, like when you 're going into a debate, you need to have that mindset, you know like you don't have one hundred percent right arguments all the time, and that's totally fine it's totally fine to disagree with people to be wrong at sometimes, but you need to be open to other people 's arguments. And you need to accept them for whatever viewpoint they have. And if you really disagree with them, just try to sort of make arguments and change their mind.
1: And what about you, Anaya? Do you feel like your generation is doing a better job than the grownups at having civilized discourse?
2: Oh, absolutely. I think... Um, just even from my experience, uh, we've done a good job of, one, being open-minded, which has been mentioned several times. And I think that oftentimes this generation understands that um, we can't tell anyone that their perspectives or values are wrong. We can only respect them and share ours. And as I mentioned before, it's really about building a consensus on something, you know, coming up with a solution to a problem, if that's what you're discussing. And so bring your ideas together, um, whether you may or may not disagree, and find a middle.
1: Well, and I wanted to go back um, and and ask the question again about what what you think that our government, our politics will look like, or what you hope it will look like in twenty years when you all are uh, qualified to run for president. Um, what what kind of what kind of politics do you hope that your generation will help shape and build, and how will it be different from from what whatever we're doing now?
2: I mean, to be honest. Um... I hope that in the future we can just have um, politics and government um, that is equal and it's full of equality. I feel like that's something we're lacking right now. Um, I hope it's a place where everyone can be evolved, regardless of the color of their skin, their gender, their sexuality, their religion, um, just a place of diversity, understanding open mindedness and safety. Well, And how do you feel like that's being undermined right now? Because certainly that's the ideal that we
1: strive for. And some people believe we, we've already reached that point, Um, but how do you feel like it's being undermined um, in this day and age?
2: I mean, I think you can see it clear if you look outside your window, the amount of protests. Um, There has been a great amount of people who are excluded from the conversation, who feel excluded from our democracy as a whole. And when people aren't being treated fairly, I think it's very obvious that we are lacking equality in our democracy and government as a whole.
1: And what about you, Matt? What do you hope that um, your generation's governing style um, and what kind of tenor do you hope that, that they'll bring to politics?
4: Well, and as we touched on earlier, I, I really hope there's less polarization. Um, you know, it's, it's okay to disagree, but we don't need to be fighting each other. Um, I really hope that there's more acceptance of different views, um, different, um, just, you know, people are different inherently. So we need to be open to that. Um, and I really do hope that in the future, that's more accepted. I think we're moving that direction, but we still have some progress to make.
1: And what's an example of polarization that kind of really frustrates you when you see it? And um, what issue kind of frustrates you that that the government or that politicians can't seem to agree on?
4: Well, um, let me take the, the uh, stimulus, I, I suppose, for example, um, you know, I want this, I want this, I'm not gonna do this until you get rid of this one. You know, it, it's just they're fighting amongst each other and we just we can't do that. Um, um yeah, it's just it's we need to agree on something and we need to agree to disagree.
1: I think that's a perfect example, absolutely. And what about you, Marcus? Um, what will President Marcus be like?
3: um I would say a person that runs a lot on trust because in these day and ages there is a lot of mistrust within our government and the politicians that we have elected and you know I think it all starts with as soon as someone casts their ballot for someone you're trusting that person to represent you in your community and then when that person doesn't fulfill those wishes you're kind of you feel like that person turned their back on you when you put them in office in the first place. So I think a great example of this would be, you know, I would say the 2016 election, and we, pretty sure we all know the outcome of that election. And you know, I think for me personally, the African American community, African American community didn't show up as much as they did um, in the 20, in the 2008 and the 2012 election. But I think, you know, once they realized that we need to trust a lot more and really think about our decisions whenever we cast a ballot and don't just throw away your ballot. Oh, because I don't trust this person. I think, you know, doing your own research and not listening to like the outer voices and everything, trying to sway your opinion, but really making the decision for who you want to represent you.
1: And Viren, do you have any views on this?
0: Yeah. So I definitely think that two things, polarization and accessibility. So In a government 20 years from now, when maybe we are policymakers or we are the president, uh, probably I would say that we definitely need a government with more accessibility to a lot more people and less polarization, just like everyone else said. I think that a great example of this would be the 2020 presidential debates. I think that a lot of people just found out that no one could find any unity. No one was agreeing. No one was talking about policy. Rather, it just disintegrated into a bunch of ad hominems ad uh, against one another. So it just shows how sort of uh, having less polarization in a government is key to having effective policy and making effective policy and changes in the world. And so I think that that is definitely a prerequisite to having an effective government and a good democracy.
1: Well, I know that you are four people in four different communities, so you can't speak for your whole generation, and I won't ask you to. But one of the things that is troubling to me, as, both as a journalist and as an American, is the fact that our citizens, um, there's a declining trust in government, in media, in all kinds of other civic institutions. And I'm interested to know, do you think that that mistrust extends to your generation? And if so, why? Do you feel like these institutions have not served your generation
2: well? Um, who wants to start? I guess Anaya. I mean, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I feel like part of this generation has definitely lost trust, um, especially for the simple fact that some of us, as I mentioned before, may feel excluded. And as Matt has mentioned, um, there hasn't been a lot of conversation around policy and how we're exactly going to change this world um, for future generations and even today. So I think that's that. It's some trust issues in there, but I also feel like this generation is very determined and we understand our position and what we want. And so I think regardless, we understand why it's important to vote, why it's important to be involved. And we are willing to work as hard as we can, um, to change this.
1: What about you, Matt? Do you feel like, um, you and your classmates that the, do you see this mistrust extending to them? Um, do you see them reluctant to get involved or reluctant to vote?
3: Yeah. Uh,
4: at my school, we have a policy that um, prohibits the use of cell phones throughout the day, and a lot of students don't like that. Of course, um, but and there's a lot of um, hostility towards the administration. And instead of you know talking to them and saying you know we we would like to, a change here, they just move on with their lives. And I think that's something that is important. Um, you can't just sit there and watch and complain to yourself. If you have a concern, you need to voice it um, respectfully, of course, and and make sure that people know where you stand.
1: So, is it? Do you feel like they feel like they're powerless? That they don't really have any autonomy to change their situation?
4: Yeah, and and you know, even if if you did talk to the administration and they didn't um, listen to you at, at first, you can keep trying you know, persistently, and and you'll eventually get there. Um, They they do feel powerless, though, because they're not included. Um, But I think they're not included, because they don't voice their opinion.
1: So it's a sort of a a downward spiral.
3: Yeah, exactly.
1: Well, I wanted to quickly, there is a question specifically for Anaya. Um, What do you think of 16-year-olds to vote for school board. One argument for it is that 16-year-olds are likelier to vote and remain lifelong voters than many 18-year-olds who register and then forget to vote in November because they are busy with school and work. So do you believe that 16-year-olds, um, Do you, are you interested in having a say in, in who runs your schools and what difference do you think it would make if teenagers could actually vote for school board?
2: Absolutely. I feel like that is where it should definitely start. I mean, we are the students um, and we want to have a say on how our curriculum is ran, who's teaching us, um, who's representing our districts. And so I think that students should have a choice in deciding who is leading and representing their school district or their schools, um, because I think it would influence a lot more students to vote in the future. And I think it would influence a lot more students to become involved and understand that their voices matter. And I think right now, a lot of students are discouraged from using their voice because they feel like there's an age limit on voting. So why am I speaking? But let's go beyond the ballot and really work hard. And if we can get students to vote uh, within their schools, there can be so much more change.
1: What about you, Marcus? Do you feel like um, 16-year-olds in Boston would be interested in in the local school board race? And what's something that they might be able to change if if uh, school board members had to be accountable to actual students?
3: Absolutely. I think that in my personal experience, I have classmates of my own that have a lot of powerful ideas, but they don't, they feel discouraged to use their voices. And I kind of have to push back a little bit more on that opinion, because, you know, start using your voice as a microphone. And, you know, going back to the school board race, I think, We need to start allowing teens to run for these races because that would really shake up the conversation a lot. And that would just, you would offer the student perspective a lot more if you had a majority students on school boards. You would see a big difference in how curriculum would be shaped for a school district. And, you know, in my personal experience, I serve as, you know, the student advisor to the superintendent of Boston Public Schools. And, you know, I really appreciate my superintendent for allowing me to offer my perspective on such a high profile role as she holds as superintendent of the district and I think my advice to other superintendents or principals assistant principals whoever's listening who has those t- type of titles you need to start allowing students to like work for you or alpha- offer their opinion on how you're doing for your job
1: but you don't get to actually cast a vote when the school board makes a decision right
3: no I don't <laughs>
1: So I mean that's that's a huge difference. You get to play this advisory role, but yeah, they don't necessarily
3: yeah, mm-hmm. have yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: interesting. So it would be fascinating to see um, more teenagers. There certainly are teenagers on school boards in some places, but if they were to eliminate um, maybe a minimum age and allow sixteen year olds to run for office, um what about you, Matt? If you were on the school board, what's something that you would try and change?
4: Um, I, I think at, at our school we've had a lot of um, electives cut um, and and that students electives are what keep students in the school in my opinion. Um, you know education is important but the um, extracurricular activities reinforce um, your your uh, major concepts. So I think I would push for more support for extracurricular activities um, and I, I think, that um, school boards could benefit if they communicated a little bit better with the community about what was happening, uh, taxpayers specifically. Um, you know, this is how we're using your money. Not just, you know, we're voting on this, and you know, uh, I I think there's a lot of change that can be made.
1: Yeah, I'm interested to know too. Um, so one of the one other question from the audience: um, Do you? believe politics these days have become a matter of personal opinions and advancement rather than what is best for America, Americans as a whole. And how do we fix this? How about you, Viren? How do we fix it?
0: Yeah, so to answer the first part, definitely. I think that it's definitely become more of a personal thing. And while it is good to have your own personal opinions, you should definitely be open to sort of other opinions. And I think that The way to fix it is definitely it all comes back to things like civics education in our school. You know, going back to what sort of Matt said, that feeling of hopelessness that you have as a kid when you're younger, you know, like you have all these issues in front of you and you want to change them, but you just don't have the ability to do so. And that feeling of hopelessness was what I felt a lot When I was younger, until I had things like the iCivics fellowship that allowed me to speak my opinion and allowed me to learn a lot more about things like civics. And I think that that all goes back to having civics education in all of our schools and all of our classrooms in order to teach sort of students how they can be more politically active and how they can stop thinking about just their opinions and rather look to the broader spectrum of, you know, like our government is supposed to be for all the people which means that civics education would really help teach our sort of younger generations how to sort of speak out and be more acceptive of sort of other opinions.
1: What about you, Matt? Um,
4: As far as how to fix it, I'm not really sure, but I do think um, civic education can play a role. Um, And going back a little bit earlier, I think our generation might be part of the solution. And yeah, I do think there's a lot of Um, personal agendas and, um, you know, um, this is my opinion, this is what I'm doing. It's not um, for the the whole country.
1: Well, I wanted to ask, too, one of the things, one of the major, one of the many major news events of this past summer was all the civil unrest, um, the protests against racial inequality, against police brutality, um, I'm interested to know um, if you participated, and if so, why, and what you thought of the protests. Did you um, did you feel that they were properly portrayed in the media? Did you feel that they were effective? Um, let me start with you, Viren.
0: Yeah, so I definitely think that these protests are good for a democracy, because it definitely shows that we have the power to and the will to speak out, you know. I've always been talking about, you know, protests as a way to speak out in a democracy. They're a great way, as long as they don't resort to things like violence. Um, And I think that you can just see that through things like the climate strikes, all the Black Lives Matter protests that are going on. And especially in my context, when I was doing things like looking into climate change and how I could help with things like climate change, I looked to the massive youth strike that was going on, led by Greta Thunberg and all these other youth activists that just showed like how much power we have as a society if we can come together and have unity. And so I think that protests are definitely a great way to sort of express your opinions. And I think that these protests are great, provided that they don't go into things like violence. And I think that these protests are a great way that people sort of speak their opinions.
1: What about you, Marcus? Did you participate in any of the protests? And um, what were your sort of thoughts on whether they were effective or whether they will be effective?
3: Yeah, so after the unfortunate killings of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, I participated with, um, I participated in a protest in Boston a few months ago. And, you know, the media was kind of one-sided a little bit and kind of just showed the looting that was happening in Boston. But from my personal experience, I think, number one, that was a beautiful protest that I went to. And you saw one of the things that made it beautiful was the different kind of people that were out there. It wasn't just one group of people. So it really showed everyone these types of the different types of people who had different types of opinions, but also came to one goal where we need to like just have equality in general. And I think that the media did a very poor job with portraying these protests around the country. And you know, it's really a shame that they would just show that part, but also just never talking about like the peaceful stuff that was happening throughout the day.
1: In Anaya, one of the things that really impressed me about Oakland was that a lot of these marches were organized by teenagers who, in the end, didn't get a whole lot of credit for pushing that movement. And there were also students that successfully in that area um, who campaigned to get police out of schools and were successful. Um, I was interested to know if you participated in the protests and um, if you feel like, it, what they, what do you think that they demonstrate um, in terms of like the power of the youth voice?
2: Well, first off, um, my school is actually one of the schools to uh, initiate a protest, which was absolutely powerful. Um, and while I wasn't able to participate, I think these protests are needed. Um, and I think it's been said several times, no justice, no peace. I think people are tired of being brutalized, being uh, treated unfairly. Uh, being excluded. Um, And so I think these protests are needed. And I just think it really just shows how powerful um, the youth are and how much devotion we put into creating change. Um, It was something that definitely empowered me. Um, So I definitely think these protests are needed. And reposting a picture of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd isn't enough. Um, I think this was a great example of taking action. What about you,
0: Sorry, oh, okay. uh, I just wanted to add really quick. Um, I think that the problem of the media sort of portraying these protests is that when you take a step back and really look at what the media wants, it's not about sort of portraying the movement correctly, right? It's about getting the best story, the best story that will get a lot of people to watch it. And like when you really take a step back and look at, you have those two things, you have the looting and the peaceful protesters. Which one is going to be a bigger story that attracts more people. Obviously, talking about people that are looting is what the media wants, because that spurs sort of drama that they're in gets them more stories and gets them more views. Now, I think that really is the fundamental issue here with the media portraying the protest as just a bunch of looters, a bunch of rioters. I think it's because the media puts so much attention on that one percent that is looting and protesting that it becomes a thing of disregarding the entire movement and the entire protest because that 1% is looting, because the media puts so much attention on that.
1: That is a very powerful and fair criticism, and I think it also speaks to what we've been talking about this whole time, which is polarization. It's a lot easier to ignore people's arguments if you focus on um, a select few that are in the extreme, um, Matt, I wanted to ask you, I know you're in rural Pennsylvania and we don't typically associate these protests um, with places outside of urban areas. Did, were there any protests in your area and um, did you participate and, and what did you think of them?
4: Uh, no, unfortunately, there weren't really any in the area. Um, and it would have been about an hour away for me there. I think there were some in Pittsburgh, but I did not participate, unfortunately. Um, but as, as has been said. I really do think that they are essential um, to make change. If we just sit back and we don't show that we disagree, then no one knows that we disagree. Um, you need to to tell people, respectively, through protests, um, that you know we don't agree with what's happening. We want change. Um, and as Viren was saying, with uh, with media and looting and all that, um, a lot of people do associate protesting with looting and destruction. That's not what it's about. It's it's about peacefully um, expressing your opinion. And it's really gotten a lot of people hung up that protesting is burning and rioting and looting. It's not that.
1: Well, I wanted to shift gears a little bit. I actually just wrote a story about the fact that President Trump, one of his goals, if he is reelected, is to make history education, U.S. history education, more patriotic. He blames the looting on bad history teachers. He says that schools are teaching children to hate America. Um, I'm interested to know what you think of your history education and if, in fact, the teachers have taught you to hate America or if there are things that you believe should be included or that shouldn't be included. Um, Matt, why don't I start with you?
4: I, I'm not sure that I've ever been taught to hate America. Um, I actually believe that, um, when you teach history, um, you're, you're trying, you're, especially American history, you're fostering a love for the country. Um, if you talk about what's happened and what's worked and what hasn't, you're inspiring the next generation to, um, either repeat what worked or not repeat what didn't work or what isn't right. Um, Yeah, a history education um, a lot of times is looked at as boring, but I do think it's essential for change because we know, oh, that didn't work 100 years ago, so let's not do that again.
1: So do you feel like the history education that you've gotten, that it's focused too much on the bad or too much on the good, or has it been just about right?
4: Oh, I think inherently history likes to focus on the the good parts. Uh, And I think a lot of teachers... um, are trying to engage students. So they focus on the good. They don't want to be depressing. But I do think it's essential that we cover everything, not just the happy, rosy parts.
1: And what about you, Anaya? Do you feel like there are voices that have not been included that should be in your history education?
2: Yeah, um, I was going to actually say, I feel like um, my history education definitely hasn't taught me to hate America, but I think it's left some parts out of our history. Um, and so that could be a reason why some may feel like um, it's teaching us to hate America, but it, it's not. Um, and I think there actually needs to be more included in our American history, as Matt mentioned, so we can know what not to repeat um, in the future.
1: And Marcus, what about you? How do you feel that you're, do you feel like your U.S. history education has been inclusive enough? Has it been too positive, too negative?
3: You know, I think that More specifically, my history education that has been, you know, just a little bit of everything and it's just what I needed to expose kind of like the ugly truth of America, because I'm gonna be honest with you, America isn't all sunshine and butterflies. It's just not, and we do have a very dark and scary history. And I think that more specifically, American history teaches that and it allows us to know the ugly truth about what happened before. And you can't you can't erase the past, you just can't. And you know, I think to what like the president was saying, I think we're not taught to hate America. We're just taught to know about what happened in the past so that, again, like everyone was saying, we don't make those mistakes again.
1: And you, Viren, what do you think about this idea of a more patriotic education? Do you feel like that that is, um, is that a good idea in terms of fostering um, democratic ideals?
0: Yeah, so I definitely think that Uh, our sort of history courses definitely need some sort of reform. I'm not sure if making it more patriotic is the right reform that we need to be taking. I think that there have been a lot of egregious examples of sort of school districts just flat out not putting things in their textbook because they didn't want their students to learn about it. Uh, And I think that that really shows that I don't think the step forward is to make it more patriotic. I don't know what that would entail. I think that all students should have it accessible to all parts of history. We should be able to learn what we want. You know, history isn't always going to be great, especially American history. It isn't always going to be perfect. And we definitely had a lot of bad things, but I think that allowing people and allowing people to learn about all of that will in turn make us more patriotic because it shows how far we've come and it it encourages people to do things with that knowledge, like learning about things like, Our history and how it's been bad in some ways, but also good in some ways, will in turn teach people how to be sort of more patriotic. So I think that we definitely do need reform in our history education, but I don't think making it more patriotic is the right reform.
1: Well, and I think we're getting close to the end, and I wanted to have each of you, and I know that this is um, a big question, but I wanted to have each of you pick an issue, whether it be gun control, global warming, racial justice you know, police reform, um, anything. And tell me how you hope your generation will do it differently, how you hope it will change when you and your peers get into power. Um, Who should we start with? Can we start with you, Matt?
4: Sure. Um, You know, it's hard to ignore that we're going through a pandemic, in my opinion. Um, And I really, I'm starting to think that Maybe um, masks and social distancing and all the all the things that you can do to prevent uh, an outbreak. Maybe we should never get rid of those. Maybe those should last forever. Um, no one wants to repeat this. Um, so I think maybe what I'd like um, the future to learn from this time is that um, it, what what's right for everybody isn't always comfortable. You know, no one really likes to wear masks, but they're essential to protect other people. Um, And again, I I go back to, with masks, um, a lot of people think, oh, I don't want to. But you shouldn't think that. You should think I'm wearing it to protect other people. Um, I I think there could be more empathy um, in in future generations.
1: That's a great answer. Um, What about you, Viren?
0: Yeah, so for me, it's always been climate change. That's the one issue I've always spoken out about. You know, whether it was in the fellowship that I did, or the soapbox speech that I made about global warming—it's all about creating change around global warming. And I think that, you know, uh, I think that we need to focus on passing more policy options rather, passing more policy around things like climate change, rather than just sort of trying to strike emotional appeal in people. I think that actually creating those policy changes is far different than just making people feel emotional about the effects of global warming. I think that our generation needs to do a lot better in things like passing concrete policy to help people across the world with sort of things like climate change and global warming. And recently, my district actually got things like zero emission school buses, which I think are just a phenomenal idea in paving the way for a more clean sort of source of energy and having more clean environment. And I think that those sort of steps are essential that we need to take in order to foster sort of a better community and have sort of less global warming happen.
1: And what about you, Marcus? What's the issue that you would like to tackle and that you hope that your generation will do differently?
3: So the issue that I really want to focus a lot on is racial justice, because I do really want to point out that racial justice should, under any circumstances, not be controversial at all. Like, that's just like the bottom line for me, that this cannot be controversial. And we're just asking for just a simple thing to be treated like everyone else but I can't ignore that there are other issues that we do have to tackle as well. And, you know, everything's important. I would just say I'm going to focus a lot on a little bit of everything, but mainly racial justice, but, you know, we do have a lot of work to do. Um, And yeah.
1: Well, I look forward to your school board candidacy as well. (laughs) And Anaya, um, tell me what you hope, that pick an issue and and tell me what, how you hope your generation will tackle it differently.
2: Uh, Mine's is the same as Marcus, definitely racial injustice. And I really just hope that in the future, um, one, the color of your skin doesn't determine your existence and values in our country. And that we can just really rebuild a justice system so that justice can actually be served. Well,
1: great. Thank you all so much for your time. Um, unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today's program. Uh, once again, I wanted to thank the Commonwealth Club and civics Now for putting together today's program. And a special thank you for the students who joined us today, Anaya Bankston, Viren Mehta, Matt Green, and Marcus McNeil. The club will soon be posting this video along with other civics education resources on its website at www.commonwealthclub.org. I am Mariah Blingit, and this is Student Summit on Civics. And the Student Summit on Civics is now completed.
0: You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate.